Thanks for joining us today. If you have any questions, please email us at info at If you would like to support this ministry financially, visit us at capitalchristian.com and click the Give button in the top right corner. Good evening. I'm so glad you made it tonight. Man, you guys know the drill. Turn to your neighbor and say, man, I'm so glad you made it tonight. Come on, turn to your second choice, your third choice, and say, Jesus is for the people. Jesus is for the people. This is a really good Friday. Can I get an amen? And, man, I just believe God's going to do something powerful in our lives. This is our Good Friday service. If you don't know, my name is Chris. My beautiful wife, Kelly, is sitting on the front row. Can you give it up for my wife? We are... We are the lead, lead pastors here at, at Capital Church, and I'm so glad you made it. Uh, if this is your very first time, could you just raise your hand? I want to see if we have any first-time guests right up here. Come on, a few out there. So glad you made it. So glad you made it. Well, uh, if you, can you give me about two hours tonight? I'd like to share just a few thoughts with you. Uh, tonight, if you're not familiar with the Good, Good Friday service, we... Uh, man, we love to party, and that's for Easter. But Good Friday's about contemplation. Good Friday's about thinking. It's about trying to figure out what in the world is Good Friday all about. And so I'm going to spend about 25, 30 minutes fleshing out what Good Friday is. And then uh, we're going to end this service with a lot of prayer and worship and communion. And I'm really excited for that. Man, I, I sense the presence of Jesus here tonight. And I hope you do too. God's going to do something uh, amazing in your life. Let me just say this. Uh, how many of you have been here over the last six weeks in our uh, Lent for the People sermon series? Okay, many of you. So we've been practicing, if you haven't been here, we've been practicing uh, giving up things, giving up impatience. How many of you did that? How, how many of you tried that? How many of you failed at that, right? So, you know, we, we've been talking about giving up impatience. We've been talking about giving up um, comparison, enmity, pride. Uh, we also talked about Tracy. Tracy, where is she? She she talked on discontentment. Can you give it up for Tracy, Amanda Wild? So we talked about giving up um, discontentment, and then Shane last week talked about giving up complaint, which no one in this church has a problem with, right? And so we've been talking about the the practice of giving up these things, but it's it's interesting, and I'm just going to kind of give you some like um, autobiographical information on my last six weeks. Every time I try to practice giving up something, the more I realize how much of it I have to give up. Like, I think Lent's a trick. And by trick, I mean, as we practice giving up stuff, uh, it, it helps us uh, <laughs> grasp, we'll say it this way, grasp uh, the depths of our personal deformation, that there's some deformative things within us. I've realized that. Maybe I'm the only one in here that has uh, experienced that the, over the last few weeks. But I think the more we practice giving up stuff, the more we realize uh, how much of that stuff that we have to give up. For, for example, uh, giving up impatience. When, the more you try to give up impatience, the more you realize how impatient you really are, Right? And so you, you begin to realize that impatience in your life is not just an occasional thing that you do. Uh, the more you practice giving up impatient, impatience and you're thinking through it and you're more, more mindful of it, the more you realize that the, the entirety of your life is actually built around the whole logic of impatience. You are impatient. You're not just impatient every now and then. And that's why I think Lent is it's beautiful because uh, I, I think it opens us up to reality. And uh, for, for example, uh, this last week, my wife and I, we looked at some, some old photos. And I remember the season that I was in, the, the, the photos that we were looking at. And uh, my wife and I were commenting about, like, how we looked. And I remember in that season, I thought I looked really good. And I, I remember I, did, I, did, I looked at my wife, and I'm like, how, wh- why did you style my hair like that, woman? You know, why is my face so fat? Has anyone ever been there before, Right. You thought you looked amazing, and then you look back, and you're like, oh, my word, I didn't realize I look like, like that. Has anybody ever tried to work out, man, let's say, man, you've been in this uh, maybe a, 
a long season of not working out and you know you're in shape, but you actually kind of think, you trick yourself, you think you are in shape. And then when you go on the scale, right, because you want to start working out again, you want to get back into shape, you get on the scale and you're like 35 pounds overweight and you're like, what happened to my misshapen body? Because I actually thought my body looked good, but now it's, I realize it's very misshapen. <laughs> but I think that's what Lent does. Lent, um, it exposes things in our own lives that I don't think we would ever think about. Jeremiah chapter 17 verse 9 says, uh, the heart is deceitfully wicked. Not only is it deceitfully wicked, it's sick. In the Hebrew, if you translate deceitful, it means it's fraudulent. It's fraudulent. It's, it's, it's wrong. Uh, our heart, the, the human heart is, is sick. And I want to mention just a few things before I get into my talk here. I, I promise I'm going somewhere. Um, in the fourth century, St. Augustine used this Latin phrase, fallor ergo sum. Could you say that? Fowler, ergo sum. Good job. It means uh, I'm wrong, therefore I am. Not I'm right, therefore I am. It's funny. We live in our secular culture uh, of hysteria, which is energized by this. It's weird, this, this logic of self-rightness. Not righteousness, rightness. Everyone and their dog. It's a country song now, right? Everyone and their dog thinks they're right, and it's energizing this secular hysteria where we, we don't care about responsibility. All we care about is our rights. One journalist I read about five years ago, she was writing on this. I disagree with some of her conclusions. But uh, she said uh, she actually came up against this whole idea of wrongology. That's what she titled her, uh, her article. And in the article, she, uh, she said, what does it feel like? And she was thinking through this question. What does it feel like to be wrong? You ever wondered about that? What does it feel like to be wrong? And she answers the question, well, gosh darn it, it feels like being right. What does it feel like to be wrong? Well, it feels like being right. And I've realized that Lent helps us expose, I think, the myth that we're better off than we really are, right? Now, when you come up against this, some of you are like really depressed right now. I have hope for you. There's two decisions you can make, right? As you practice giving up stuff, you can make the decision of psychological despair. You can practice, um, and I think this is a bad, unhealthy practice of like psychological analysis. We call it Christian navel gazing. So if you come up against your own deformation in your life and you've realized you've tricked yourself for some time, uh, you, can, you can try, it's not going to work. You can become so interested in your psychological state and try to figure out yourself and try to become a better person, which will only lead you to despair. And all the Christians said amen. So that's one, one strategy when, when you come to the realization that, man, you might not be as good as you think you are. The second, and this is what I love about Lent, the second decision or the second maneuver that you can make is you can allow Lent to drive you into Jesus. Come on. You allow Lent to drive you closer to Jesus. Now, hopefully you hear me. Don't, don't, let me say it this way. We have an incredible capacity to lie to ourselves. That's why we need Jesus. It's funny, uh, my wife and I moved to the North End. How many of you love the North End? Everyone said amen. All the vegans said amen. Come on, I love our vegans. If you love our vegans, come on, give a hand clap. Come on, hand clap. Right? We love all the hippies and the vegans, and God is good. God loves Christians too. But we moved to the North End, and uh, we, we, my wife and I, we had a, a garage sale, and we were selling some chairs and stuff. And I remember this couple came up, and and uh, bought some chairs from us, and uh, they gave us a $20 bill. And I was like, I, I thought that was the coolest thing because I'm not a garage seller. And the fact that someone would buy some chairs of ours, I thought that was the most incredible thing. So I took that 20 actually, I kept that $20 bill, put it in my wallet, and for a couple days, I just kind of 
uh, kept it. I don't know, just whatever. Drove around with it, right, in my wallet. Uh, and then I decided I was going to go to the bank and deposit it into our checking account. So I went up to the, the banker, and uh, we actually have a really good relationship. And I gave that $20 bill, and then I had some other 20s, and I was, I was just throwing cash. I was, like, making it rain, right? <laughs> All this cash. I thought I was, like, this is awesome. And uh, never had that experience before. And uh, he saw this $20 bill that I've been carrying around for a long time. And he, he quickly looked at it and he said, hey, Chris, uh, this is a counterfeit. And I, I, I was devastated because I think I'm a pretty smart guy. And I just got, like, like, like conned, right? But then I had to, and he, he had to stop me because for about five minutes, I had to explain, I promise, this is not me, right? I'm not counterfeiting 20s. And he said, stop it. I know this isn't you. But it was funny that I was carrying around a $20 counterfeit bill in my pocket, and I didn't even know it. I thought I had a legit $20 bill. I thought it was genuine. I was convinced of my rightness, right? And then the banker, because he knows how to discern between the genuine and the counterfeit, and I'm going to talk about this a little bit at the end of this message. He said, Chris, hey, uh, <laughs> you have a counterfeit. And uh, you got to get, I got to take it. So he literally took it from me and in front of my eyes ripped it apart. I'm like, oh God. And I wanted to run. I didn't know what to do. So it's funny how I, honestly, it's, it's kind of a, I don't know, a metaphor for, and I'm not talking about like the unbelievers. I'm not talking about just the Satanists. I'm not talking about ISIL. I'm not talking about the people that we just assume are totally wrecked in unbelief and deception. I'm talking to the Christians tonight. I think many times we, we carry around these counterfeit identities. We carry around these counterfeit ideas of ourself. Uh, we, we've allowed circumstances. We've allowed things to shape our mind, our will, our emotion that has deformed our lives. The good news is that Jesus sets us free. So the question is, now this is like my second movement in my message tonight. This, the, the question is, why is Good Friday so good? I'm going to tie it to our capacity to delude ourselves and the deformation or the deformative practices or habits that we, on, on, in, in many ways, on an unconscious level, embrace. I'm going to tie that with, why is Good Friday so stinking good? How many believe that Good Friday is good? C.S. Lewis quipped about 50 years ago. He said, hey, if anyone witnessed a crucifixion, they would never, ever, 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 everyone say ever, ever wear a cross again. Like, if you ever witnessed a crucifixion in the ancient world, uh, it was because it was such a horrifying psychological event, you would never be the same again. Crucifixion was perfected. It wasn't invented by Rome. Uh, academics or academicians will call Rome the empire. It's kind of like if you nerd out on Star Wars, it's like the empire strikes back, right? This is Rome. Rome, Rome did not invent crucifixion. Uh, they perfected it. Uh, crucifixion was an art form. It was a graphic art form to extract as much pain as possible from the person who was being crucified. It was a political weapon. They weaponized politics to incite fear in the, in the Roman Empire. Crucifixion was a, like a triple thing that happened to you, and I want to get into the graphic details, but crucifixion uh, was either death by asphyxiation, it was either death by heart failure, or it was death by exhaustion. It was psychologically numbing. It would be the worst thing that you could ever witness. So why did early Christians announce to the world that through the crucifixion of Jesus, that the world would never be the same again? Why would they say to everybody that the turning point in human history ran through the crucifixion of Jesus? Paul would even go as far to say that the basic facts of our universe were profoundly altered. And by facts, I'm not talking about, okay, you follow Jesus, you turn into a soulish being at the end of your life, and you fly off to a disembodied state, and you play a disembodied harp, and you shine like Rihanna's diamonds. That is not what Jesus is saying and talking about when it comes to his crucifixion, nor were the Christians saying that. When the Christians were talking about the basic facts of our universe were profoundly altered, they're talking everything between politics and people and platypuses, if you like platypuses. 
In fact, that, that Jesus was in fact enthroned as king of the world. Can I get an amen? Through his death. That through the death of Jesus, I love this, death died, <laughs> was overthrown. That through the death of Jesus, it's hard, to, it's hard to, for us to get our minds around this, but through the death of Jesus, man, forgiveness was offered to everyone. Can, I, can everyone say everyone? Not just someone, not just a few people, but everyone. Not only that, we know that vocation was renewed through Jesus. So why was crucifixion so powerful? Because it was such a horrifying psychological event to the early Christians. Why would they announce that Jesus is now king of the world? And I wish I had four hours to flesh this out, but I don't. Let me just say this really quick. Modern Western thinking uh, is kind of goes like this. It's, it's basically a form of chronological snobbery. We think that the, the world had its defining moment about 250 years ago with Descartes, cogito ergo sum. Like we, we, we became finally rational and we invented science and modern medicine. And with the advent of modern medicine, how many of you appreciate modern medicine? Okay, there's nothing wrong with modern medicine. If you're sick, go to the doctor. Can I get an amen? And if you're a doctor, we love you. <laughs> So very much. But with the, the, uh, we, we assume that uh, with the advent of modern medicine and with technology and with Apple TV and with coffee and globalization and the advent of the Dallas Cowboys, which is the greatest franchise ever in human history, <laughs> that the world has changed, right? Western-style democracy, whatever, or neuropsychology, or um, our ability to, to understand a little bit more of quantum physics or whatever. We believe that the world has turned like 250 years ago, maybe 100 years ago. In fact, if you're a Christian, you have to disagree with that. Have an iPhone. That's great. Have some coffee. Can I get an amen to that, right? Believe in globalization. You can or whatever. You don't have to. Um, follow the Dallas Cowboys or follow the Oakland Raiders or get a cat or get a dog. It doesn't matter. But as Christians, we believe that the defining moment in human history wasn't Western Enlightenment. It wasn't Western-style democracy. It wasn't the United States of America. And I love the United States of America. I'm so glad that we live in our country. Can I get an amen? But the defining moment in human history was the crucifixion of Jesus. So how do we make sense of this? Well, I'm going to go to John chapter 18, and I'm going to give you a case study of Pilate. And it reveals to us the glory of God. And this is connected to why Good Friday is so stinking good. We're going to begin in John 18, 33. If you're there, you can turn there. And we're going to talk about Pilate and Jesus. So this is a story about power. This is a story about how, how uh, God rules or runs the world. And Pilate is thoroughly befuddled by Jesus. So Pilate entered his headquarters again, and this is on a Good Friday. Everyone said Good Friday. And called Jesus and said to him, are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus answered, do, do you say this of your own accord, or did others say it to you about me? And Pilate answered, am I a Jew? Your own nation and the chief priests have delivered you over to me. What have you done? Verse 36. So Jesus answered, and I'm going to flesh out just four statements here. And at the end, I'm going to pray for you guys. And we're going to talk about, we're going to make the connection between our unfaithfulness and the goodness of Good Friday and Jesus' response to Pilate. My kingdom, Jesus answered, is not of this world. My kingdom were of this world. My servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not from this world world. Verse 37, then Pilate said to him, he's now confused. He's never heard of a king talk like this. Kings don't talk like this. Pilate said to him, so you're a king? He's confused. Jesus essentially, and I want to flesh out this statement, he said, my kingdom is not of this world. Can I get an amen? It's not of this world. It's not from this world, but the kingdom of Jesus is for this world. This world matters. So the kingdom of Jesus is not of this world, it's not from this world, but it's for this world. What Jesus is saying when he says it's not of this world, it's not from this world, he's essentially in the Greek, he's saying it's not, it's not made out of the stuff of this world. 
Basically, Jesus is saying that power has been paganized, that the power that the pagans, the Caesars, have been exercising uh, is, is a corrupt version or it's a tragic parody or imitation of genuine power. Jesus is saying, hey, the logic is crazy here, Pilate. Check this out. He didn't say it like that, but that's just my, like my translation, right? Jesus said, hey, so uh, to fight like the pagans uh, is pagan. To fight like the pagans through violence, through coercion, through impatience, forcing yourself or your agenda on somebody uh, is insecurity, and it's not a reflection of true power. So Jesus is making the case, hey, to fight like the pagans is paganism itself. So as Christians today, man, hey, if you intend to follow Jesus, and I believe in this, uh, we, we serve a king not of violence, but of peace. We serve a king bent on reconciliation, not on deconstructing a human being or the image of God in a person. Can I get an amen? I don't care how righteous you are, but if you can't control your mouth and you're using violent rhetoric against another church member or against another church or against maybe someone you don't agree with, you're not in line with who Jesus is. And this is what Jesus is saying. So Jesus is saying, hey, to fight like the pagans is paganism itself. And I'm not a pagan. I serve my father. Jesus then continues to say, you say that I am a king for this purpose. I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world to bear witness to the truth. I love this. Everyone who's of the truth, everyone say truth, listens, listens to my voice. Verse 38, Pilate said to him, he's now stunned. Everyone say stunned. Maybe he's sneering a little bit, but I think he's like obfuscating his real like internal psychological world because he's, he, he doesn't understand a king talking like this. A king not exercising violent power over people. So Pilate, and he's not a philosopher. So this is not a, a, a philo- philosophical inquiry, right? He goes, what is truth? After he said this, he went back outside to the Jews and told them, I find no guilt in him. What is truth? So Jesus said, my kingdom is not of this world, it's not from this world, but it's what? For this world. And then Pilate says, what is truth? Truth for Pilate, you could say, is social utility. Truth for Pilate, you could say, um, is might makes right. For Pilate, again, these, these two statements, my kingdom is not of this world, is not from this world, is linked to this this truth statement or this truth question from Pilate, Pilate is befuddled because he just assumes that power works through violence. This is like, a, if, if you're a philosopher here, any, any philosophers here, Dr. Stan and maybe it's Dr. Stan and I, Dr. Stan, I'll talk to you. So this is kind of like proto-social Darwinism, right? This is before Darwin. He's, he's in Mark Francie. Mark, I'm going to speak to Mark Francie, a resident philosopher. Right, Pilate, Pilate is essentially saying, hey, man, there's, there's a sharp verticality, right? There's a hierarchy, and it's the powerful who uh, they exercise their power over the people, and they get what they want. What is true? Funny story. This is kind of a parable-ish story. Uh, David Waster, uh, Wallace Foster uh, came up with this story, and the story goes like this. Again, it's kind of a parable-ish story. There were two fish. Everyone say two fish. There were two fish swimming along uh, in, uh, in a river, and one day they came up, and uh, they saw this older fish. And the older fish looked at them and said, uh, what's up, right? I said, what's up? And then he says, uh, how's the water today, boys? And the fish were like, huh? And so he swam off, and the two fish uh, went uh, down the stream or up the stream, whatever. And one of the fish turned to the other fish and said, what is water? And some of you are like asking the, in your head right now, what's the point? I don't know what the point is. I'm kidding. The point seems to be that, uh, that the most basic thing about the fish's existence, i.e. water, is the hardest thing for that fish to grasp. So it seems like, let's just, I'm going to add a little bit to the story. Let's just assume that the fish is in polluted water, and they don't even know it. And they're just kind of swimming down, having a great time with pollution and mutation and weird looking fish with like 30 different eyeballs and they think that's normal 
What is water? It's kind of the same thing that Pilate's saying. What is truth? Truth for him has, has been parodied, tragically parodied by pagans. Here, here's the thing. Uh, the wrong exercise of power. If, if you continue to wrongly exercise power, guess what's going to happen? You're going to become numb to that. You're going to become blind to the wrong use of power. So much so, you'll normalize the wrong use of power. Can I just say something really quick? This isn't just for Caesars and kings and presidents and CEOs and the big corporate man, right? 1960s, the man. We're going to get the man. Like, this is not countercultural rhetoric. Everyone in this room has power. Can I get an amen? You've been given power. We go back to Genesis chapter 1. You're made in the image of God. And being made in the image of God essentially is another way of saying that you're a king if you're a man and you're a queen if you're a woman. Kings and queens. In other words, God has given you power and influence and he wants, to, wants you to exercise that rightly. God has no problem with power. God has no problem with the gifts that he has given to you. Everyone in this room has a gift. Everyone in this room has a job to do in this world. Where God has a problem is when we wrongly exercise the use of power. And the more we do that, the more we normalize it. And the more we normalize the wrong use of power, guess what happens? Guess what happens? We actually demonize the right use of power. And so when we see love, and we see patience, and we see kindness, and we see forgiveness, what does the world say? That's weakness. Right? Well, what's going on? Well, the world is swimming down this polluted stream, and they've bought into this cheap imitation of power and what it means to be human. And Jesus, who is the embodiment of love and forgiveness and truth, is turning the world right side up. You have a custom that I should, should and I need to continue, that I should release one man for you at the Passover. So do you want me to, and this is Pilate talking, so you want me to release you to the king of the Jews. Verse 40. And they cried out again, not this man, but Barabbas. Now Barabbas was a robber. Let me just say this really quick. A robber, that's not like a petty thief, like he's going into like ancient homes and jacking TVs and, you know, whatever, cars and stuff. No, robber is a, is a revolutionary brigand. Uh, so he probably, Barabbas, led an insurrection movement. So this dude's a bad dude. It's all about blood and violence. And again, the irony is thick in this passage as Jesus talks about power. And so Pilate says, do you want me to release Barabbas? Obviously, they released Barabbas. Verse 1 of chapter 19. Are you guys still with me? Okay. Then Pilate took Jesus and flogged him. And the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns. This is deliberate lampoon. Is all about Romans knowing how to publicly shame a person. And they put it on his head and arrayed him in a purple robe. They came up to him saying, Hail, King of the Jews. And they struck him with their hands. Verse 4, Pilate went out again and said to them, See, I am bringing him out to you that you may know that I find no guilt in him. So Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns. I love this, the crown of thorns and purple robe. Jesus at this, at this point is dehydrated. Jesus, I'm sure, is disoriented. He's physical. He's experiencing horrific shaming and beating. And Pilate said, and these are the truest words that will ever come out of Pilate's mouth. And John is hinting this way. Pilate said to them, behold the man. Behold the man. What's remarkable about this passage is that Jesus is silent pretty much the whole time. Jesus' version of justice is silence. You know what our version of justice and our Western-style democracy is? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to let people know what I think. Facebook, Facebook, Instagram, 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 whatever. I mean, come on. Jesus wants the Christians to shut up. Sometimes, and, and I've had friends disagree with me. Chris, silence. Uh, basically means complicity with the powers. I'm like, please stop it. No. This doesn't mean that we can't speak the truth in love. The problem is I just don't think a lot of people are mature enough to speak the truth in love. 
And before you speak the truth in love, maybe you should practice some silence in your life. Shut your mouth, quiet your mind, and actually listen, listen to the Holy Spirit. Behold the man. This is where John is leading. This is a climactic moment in the Gospel of John. This is on the sixth day. This is Good Friday. If you go all the way back to Genesis chapter 1, what do you find? On the sixth day, God made humans. Here we have the true human. That's what John is saying. Here we have the beginnings of new creation. Behold the man. And this is linked to John chapter 1. Are you ready for this? If you could quickly, uh, media, go to John chapter 1, and then we're going to come back to John 19. I'm so sorry. I'm throwing you a loop. But John chapter 1, verse 14, this is in John's prologue, and he says, And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Your translation should read tabernacled among us. This is Exodus story language. What is John saying? John's evoking the book of Exodus. This is the book of Exodus is all about the tabernacle. The tabernacle was a portable heaven earth construct. People in the ancient world believed that tabernacles and temples were the place where heaven and earth intersected and came together. So John is, is evoking Exodus language, and he says the word became flesh, and he tabernacled among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory in the Hebrew is what? Kavod. Everyone say kavod. They have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full. Everyone say full. Full of grace and truth. The Hebrew translation of grace and truth is uh, steadfast love and faithfulness. Quickly, verse, where am I? Verse 16. Forget verse 15 and 16. Let me take you to Exodus chapter 34. Quickly, Exodus chapter 34. So, Grace and truth is actually the equivalent in the Hebrew of love, steadfast love, and faithfulness. And where do we see this? We find this in Exodus chapter 34, verse 5. It says, the Lord descended in the cloud and stood with them there. This is Moses and proclaimed the name of the Lord. Moses in Exodus 33 said, I just want to see your glory. Glory in, in the Hebrew. And I wish I had like 10 hours <clears throat> to talk about this. Glory is amazing. Glory basically means weight. Everyone say weight. Like substance, weight, beauty, majesty. To not have glory means to be light. To have glory means to have weight and substance. Like if MJ, Michael Jordan, for those of you who do not know that, and that is actually pretty shameful. All you, young, all you youths, okay? Check yourself before you wreck yourself, all right? MJ is Michael Jordan, the greatest baller in human history, right? If he was to come back here and play, even though he's like a little bit over 50, you would know that, that he has weight. Steph Curry can't, comes back to the gym and, like, starts breaking you down. You know he has weight. This is the idea, weight, majesty, glory. This is what Moses wants to know. God, who are you? Remember this ancient Near East culture. The pagan gods were brutal. Moses wants to know who Yahweh is. We come to verse 5, and God proclaims his name. The Lord, dis verse 6, sorry media, the Lord passed before him, Moses that is, put him in the cleft of the rock, and proclaimed the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding. Everyone say abounding. Abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers and the children and the children's children. We'll talk more about that later to the third and the fourth generation, which is startlingly, startlingly, that's not a word, remarkably, that is a word, remarkably good news. Twice, God, Yahweh, is abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. So what is God's glory, it's steadfast love and faithfulness. Moses' face doesn't explode when he sees this glory. Come on, his face doesn't melt off. It's kind of a bad joke. The molecules in his body do not undergo massive quantum change in God's glory. What happens? Moses does not experience the horror of coming up against a pagan deity bent on annihilating him. Moses experiences steadfast love. What is steadfast love? Steadfast love is translated hesed or hesed, and faithfulness is translated amet. These two words 
beautifully complement each other. The word love, has said, uh, is translated in your, in your uh, Bible either as love or it's translated as steadfast love. Uh, some translate it as loving kindness or goodness. Has said, or steadfast love, is quoted or used over 254 times in the Old Testament. Steadfast love, has said, and a met. And I get this from, if you want a really good book on this, is John Mark Comer's book, uh, God Has a Name. He talks about this. Has said and, and uh, a met are the most dominant or defining qualities of God's glory. Can I get an amen? So, what does has said mean? What does steadfast love mean? There's no literal translation from Hebrew to English. Other translations, as I mentioned, use goodness, loving kindness, steadfast love. So what is love? How many of you want to know that? Four of you. What is love? Daniel Block, Hebrew scholar, said in Hebrew, has said, everyone say, has said, cannot be translated with one English word. It's a covenant term, wrapping up in itself all the positive attributes of God. Love covenant faithfulness, mercy, grace, kindness, loyalty, in short, acts of devotion and loving kindness that go beyond the requirements of duty. In other words, steadfast love is also active because it's given to those who don't deserve it. If you're living in the ancient Near East culture, this would have been a revolutionary text, a revolutionary story. God proclaims his steadfast love will be given to those who don't even deserve it. You find this within the whole Old Testament thought world. In other words, if, again, if you're living in this ancient Near East world, a pagan God would never offer faithful love to someone who did not deserve it. And this God, contrary to like street-level understanding of the Old Testament, gives love out recklessly. It's glory. Lamentation, I actually mentioned this to the staff and our interns this Tuesday. The book of Lamentations, how many of you read it? Okay, good. Most of you haven't. That's okay. It's a dark book. It's apocaly- it feels apocalyptic. Uh, it's, it's obviously a lament. Uh, some have called it a dirge. Uh, in this book, God's people have been unfaithful in their covenant relationship with God. Again, the unfaithfulness of God's people is really a light motif that you find in the Old Testament. Or it's like the, the theme of the Old Testament. God wants to partner with his people, but God's people, they take the grace and the blessing of God, and they turn it on themselves. They use blessing for themselves rather than reflecting that blessing back into the world. And so we find is that lamentation is an acrostic. It's shaped by an acrostic um, poem. Each verse, in other words, begins with the letter of the Hebrew alphabet. The first four chapters build toward the center. It's dark. It's horrifying. It's apocalyptic. But I love this. At the center of this lamentation, you find the word has said, and it's this, no one, the author writes, is cast off forever because so great is his unfailing has said. In other words, you might have broken your covenant. Yeah, you're a broken, crazy people. This is what God is saying to his people. You have been unfaithful, and all the consequences that now you are suffering is because of your unfaithfulness. But what God is saying, right in the middle of the darkest time in Israel's history, God says, you might have broken your covenant, but I won't break it. Even in the midst of your despair or brokenness or sin, here's the hope. And this is like the good news in microcosm. God will not abandon you. Lamentations is a remarkable portrait of God's character. It deals with the double problem of unfaithfulness of God's people and the covenant faithful love of God. Man, if you were to describe who God is, it's faithful covenant love or justice. That's who God is. He doesn't act that way. He is faithful covenant love. So even though you're unfaithful to God, even though you collude with deformative habits and practices that turn you inward and keep you from fulfilling God's purpose for your life. God remains faithfully committed to you. So there's hope tonight. Man, if, if you're broken, if, if you're addicted, if you're in sin, 
if you've allowed dark powers to take over your heart, your mind, your soul, if you're in a hopeless situation, the good news is God remains faithfully, lovingly committed to you. This is Jesus for the people. It's amazing. Faithfulness. So that's Hased. It's the, the faithful love of, of Yahweh. Faithfulness or a met beautifully complements God's steadfast love. A met is found 275 times. It means, and we actually prayed this at our staff prayer this uh, Tuesday. It means true, consistent, faithful, reliable, fidelity, and steadfastness. One of its translations in the Greek is amen. I don't know if you know this, but amen is not like so be it. Let it happen, God. Like que sera, sera. I don't even know what that means, but it sounded right. Like just whatever happens, it's going to happen. Right? That's not amen. Many people think that's what amen is. No, amen is, yes, it's going to happen. Yes, what you say and what you've promised will come true. That God is faithful to his word. Come on. If you are strip down the Christian story, man, strip it down. Remove all the theological or academic language. I believe this. You would find that God, in his essence, is a promise maker and a promise keeper. This is a met. Steadfast love and a met. I love that. Amen. So what does his faithfulness look like in our life? Uh, again, the author compliments a met, beautifully compliments a met with a steadfast love or has said. Um, and this is, this is important for us to understand because it's said by itself, you could just assume maybe it's just like a concept or an abstraction. God loves me, I guess, you know, but my life sucks right now and I'm going through difficult circumstances. But when you compliment a met with a said or faithfulness or with love, you begin to realize in your life and centuries, God's people begin to realize this in their lived experience that God's love and his faithfulness is active. Like God is intimately involved in our world. He's not distant. I mean, we've got too many therapeutic, deistic, moralistic people in the church. In fact, I think it was Houston Smith, Christian Smith, sociologist said, basically, if you're 35 and younger, I've made the cut. But if you're 35 and younger, a lot of people that go to church they, they think that God, in other words, they've conceived of a God who's like somewhere out there. And he'll intervene in your life every now and then if you pray really hard and you live a really good life. That's deism, people. That's not the Christian story. I don't know if you know this, but God is intimately involved in your life every single day. Well, why, why can't I see him? That's my question from two, my two beautiful boys. Because I tell this, tell this to them all the time. They're like... Dad, if God is with me, why can't I hear him? And, you know, my response is, Quincy, Wesley, how many times do I try to get your attention and you don't hear me? Like, oh, I get it. God's always talking to you. You're just not listening. So, and by therapeutic, I mean, people just assume that Jesus is supposed to be like, and there's nothing wrong with therapists, but Jesus is like our best friend therapist who's supposed to make our life better, right? So let's go sit on the couch. There's nothing, there's nothing wrong with sitting on a couch and sharing your life to a therapist. I'm not, like, demeaning that. But Jesus is not your, like, cosmic therapist. Jesus is going to make you holy. Jesus is going to make you truly human. Jesus is going to put your life back together. Not only are we not therapeutic in our understanding of following Jesus, uh, we, we don't believe in moralism. We don't believe in the good American story and how many good Americans do we have here. And I love the United States of America. Can I get any man? Just want you to understand that I'm so glad that I live in the greatest state, in the greatest nation, right, in the world. Or what you can think whatever you want to think. But we live in a really good state, right? We're Idahoans. We fish. We shoot guns. I love it. It's like my favorite thing to do. I mean, we shoot guns in the wilderness and we shoot bears and that's my favorite thing that I, I enjoy it immensely. We, we go on Bigfoot hunts. Can I get an amen? We go fly fishing. I'm, like, I'm just like totally Idahoan. If you want to have an Idahoan experience, just come and I'll, I'll, I'll show you, okay? Um, moralism is not, okay, 
again, kind of the American story is, man, you're at the bottom. It's a little bit of Drake. And if you work really hard, you can get to the top. Right? That's the American story. Our story is not that. Our story is not, hey, we can make ourselves better. That we can put our lives back together. It's impossible. You can try, you can try, you can try, you can try. It ain't going to happen. The only way that you can put your life back together is you got to allow, and this is what I love about Lent, is to allow your life to be driven into Jesus. And Jesus in his goodness and his glory transforms you. You didn't bring any goodness here tonight, people. I don't know why I'm doing that with my arms. You didn't bring it. You don't bring anything to the table. God brings it all. He brings all the goodness, all the grace, all the love, all the beauty and the majesty. And he puts your life back together. This is true Christianity. So when Met and Hesed work together, and the very first time you see Hesed and Met together is in, is in a story about love. Everyone say love. Pursuing someone. Genesis 24, I can't, I don't have time to read it. Uh, Genesis 24 is a story about Abraham. He's getting old. He sees a servant, and uh, he needs to get a bride for his, his uh, son, Isaac. So he looks to his servant and says, come over here. And there's a strange oath ritual where Abraham says, grab my thigh. One pastor said, don't you thigh with me? Bad joke. I knew it wasn't going to work on this. It's an oath ritual basically saying, promise me that you'll do what I ask you to do. I want you to go to this far country, and I want you to find a, a bride for my son. So the servant does what he's told. He goes to a city. Outside the city, there's a well. Many of you know the story. I think it's Re Rebecca comes out and sees uh, the servant and uh, gives refreshment uh, to the camels and to the servant. One pastor said, this is like, this is the way to a man's heart. We've never changed. You just give food, and men will fall in love with you, right? Anyways, another bad joke. Wow. And so Rebecca, Rebecca feeds the, the camels and takes, helps to take care of the servant. And then in verse 27 uh, this is what the, the servant says. He praises the Lord who has not abandoned his said and met. The whole context of this story in Genesis 24 is a story about a father finding a bride for his son. Does it sound familiar to you? A father finding a bride for his son. The church is the bride of Christ. And here you, again, you have the good news in miniature, these stories of Jesus. Think about all the stories of Jesus and his radical welcome in the kingdom, inviting people to be a part of the kingdom, going out into the highways and in the byways, reaching people, connecting with people, and bringing them into this mess messianic banquet, which signified that God's world was being made new and that all people, not just some people, but all people could be a part of it. Man, we look at John. John it tells us that Jesus is the shepherd who gives his life. John tells us that Jesus is the one uh, in, in John chapter 13 uh, who gave his life or loved his disciples to the very end. And that just simply represents what we find in John chapter 1, 14, 15, and 16, the glory of God. The glory of God is not about annihilating the space-time continuum. The glory of God is about pursuing people, loving people, loving people in dark places, loving people who are broken, loving people who are in despair right now, loving people that have powerful psychological addictions, loving people who have powerful physical conditions, loving people who are sick in their body, in their molecules or their DNA, whatever, is not functioning like it should. We serve a God who is full of steadfast love, full of faithfulness. And so we come back to John chapter 19. That was a way too long digression, and I'm almost done. 
Thanks, Keila, for that laugh. Because Keila just agreed with me. So Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe. Pilate said to them, behold the man. And then when the chief priests and the officers saw him, they, cru- they cried out, crucify him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, take him yourself and crucify him, for I find no guilt in him. The Jews answered him, we have a law, and according to that law, he ought to die because he has made himself the son of God. When Pilate heard the statement, he was even more afraid. He entered his headquarters again and said to Jesus, where are you from? But Jesus gave him no answer. So Pilate said to him, you will not speak to me. Do you not know that I have authority to release you and authority to crucify you? I love this. I want to encourage you tonight. Verse 11 is one. I just love it. So powerful. Jesus answered him, you would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given to you from above. I wish we could think like this. Your boss is not in charge of you, but honor your boss. Right? But he's not in charge of you. Circumstances are not in charge of you. That disease is not in charge of you. God is not like up in heaven, and heaven's all around us, right? But God is not like, oh, God, that disease. Oh, oh God. Oh, God, me. I'm God. That disease is like, I, I can't believe that you're having that right now. No, there's nothing in this world. Be encouraged. That's somehow outside the range of God's authority. Not that sickness not that boss, not your circumstances. God is in charge. And Jesus is saying to Pilate, hey, my father's in charge. And this is why I think Jesus, this is the reason why Jesus could do what he did. This is why Jesus could negotiate the horrifying psychological terror of crucifixion because he knew his father was in charge and he knew his father was good and he knew what his father said to him would come to pass. And some of us, and this is just a critique on how secular thinkers think. I call it mobocracy. We're living in a weird, strange, apocalyptic world. But many people can't understand that God actually works through corrupt authority. Basically, Jesus is saying, hey, you're part of this play. And then he says, therefore, he who delivered me over to you has the greater sin. Verse 12, from then on, as I close, Pilate sought to release him, but the Jews cried out, if you release this man, you are not Caesar's friend. Everyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar. So when Pilate heard these words, he brought Jesus out and sat down on the judgment seat at a place called the Stone Pavement in Aramaic, Gabbatha. And that was the day of preparation of the Passover. This is key. We'll talk about this next Good Friday. It was about the sixth hour. Thanks, guys. Wasn't a joke, but thank you. It was about the sixth hour. He said to the Jews, behold your king. Behold has said and met, full of grace and mercy and love. And they cried out, away with him, away with him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, shall I crucify your king? And the chief priest answered, we have no king but Caesar. So he delivered him over to them to be crucified. So they took Jesus and they crucified him. We have no king but Caesar. Obviously, the chief priests who represent God's people are working in collusion with the ways of Caesar. God's people and being faithful to reflect God's love in this world had been co-opted by paganism. Chief priests, again, representing the people of God, felt like the only way that God's justice would come to this world would come through violence, would come through coercion, would come through blood, the sword, death. Jesus says, no, my kingdom comes through forgiveness, peace, reconciliation, love, and more love, and more love. I don't want to destroy you. I want to love you. So we have a summons to look tonight. I want you to imagine you're you're at the foot of the cross and you're looking up at the crucified, our crucified Savior. Through his death, he defeated death. 
This is a one-off event. Can I get an amen? You and I cannot defeat death. But Jesus defeated it. You and I cannot defeat sin and addiction and the dehumanizing habits in our lives. Jesus did. And our summons tonight, as we partake of communion and sing, is to, is to look, again, imagine you're at the foot of the cross, and look at the crucified Jesus, our Savior, and allow that portrait to give shape to the rest of your life. As Christians, we're summoned to reorder our whole life around this picture of love. Jesus remained silent. Jesus was patient. Patient. Jesus was not insecure. I'm so glad Jesus didn't call down legions of angels and annihilate everybody. Because then new creation would not have been launched. Jesus not, would not have been enthroned as king of the world. Salvation, forgiveness of sins would never have take, taken place. So tonight, my challenge you can call this a give up, take up, whatever. I want us, as we receive communion, I want us to take a look at this portrait, this remarkable portrait of the love of Jesus and allow it to transform our hearts. I want, I want, Dad, you said it perfectly. I want the Holy Spirit to go to the subterranean levels of our existence, right? change us. I want him to change us because can I be honest with you? I think many of us are, we're, we're rolling through life if we're not careful with these counterfeit substitute identities. And to be honest, for some of us, maybe there's no distinction between the world and, and us following Jesus because we're swimming in pollution. Like what is water? What is truth? We're just acting like everybody else. And this is such a beautiful picture of what genuine power looks like. How did Jesus transform the world? How does Jesus rule the world? It's by his love. That's how he changed everything. That's how he changes everything. So how, how, how do you discover the counterfeits in your life? Scott Maurice and I had this conversation probably two years ago at my house. The way you do it banker, this is what the banker told me. I gave him that $20 bill. He ripped it up. He said, that's a counterfeit. I'm like, how did you know that was a counterfeit? He's like, Chris, 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 Chris. Every single day, I go through hundreds, if not thousands of 20s, real 20s. And I just go through them. And I just, I just look at them. And, and I've, I've gotten to the point because I'm just immersed every day in the real and the genuine $20 bill that I can, I can identify little idiosyncrasies. I can identify because the counterfeit is almost like the real, the genuine. It's almost like it, but it's not quite. And he goes, Chris, the only way that I can identify a counterfeit is I have to know in a thorough way what the genuine is like. So my summons is, take this portrait of Jesus, his love, John chapter 18 and 19 and immerse yourself in it. Think about it. Contemplate. Pray over this. Allow the Holy Spirit to go to the depths of, of who you are and change you to this beautiful picture of who Jesus is. You, you, you can't get rid of counterfeits by trying to get rid of counterfeits. Can I get an amen? The only way you can do it is by just spending time with Jesus. So I guess this is a take-up. What's our take-up? Spend time with Jesus. Immerse yourself in his word, in these beautiful pictures and stories that the gospels offer us. And the more you immerse yourself in scripture, the more you're formed in scripture, the more you'll be able to identify counterfeits and the more human you'll become. And that's where life is. If you want life, give Jesus a hand. I want you to bow your heads, close your eyes. Father, as our eyes are closed, our heads are bowed. I know I went a little bit too long, but I thank you.
for your presence tonight. We thank you that your glory is here. We thank you that it's not by might nor by power, but it's by your spirit. I thank you, Holy Spirit, you're working in us. Take these thoughts, take your word, and let it give shape to our embodied lives, to our thinking, our speaking, our living, our acting, our feeling, all of it. Transform us in Jesus' name. I think the power of Jesus is here right now. And we say yes to your glory tonight. We say yes to your love. We say yes if you need healing, I want you to say yes to healing. If there's an addiction in your life, I feel like there's those of you who have a psychological addiction to something. Some of you have a physical addiction to something. I want you right now, if that's you, I want you to say yes to Jesus. Just say yes. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you because of the achievements of Jesus. We can say yes to you, and when we say yes to you, you transform us. You liberate us. You change us. We love you, Father. I want you to wait 30 seconds, eyes closed, heads bowed. I just want you to wait and just listen to the Holy Spirit. Thanks for listening to this week's message from Capital Christian. We hope you will stay connected by following us online. To find out more information, visit us at capitalchristian.com.